John 14. My clicker is not working, Caleb. There we go. John 14, 15 to 31. I love history. I love reading history. Really, I love reading history of any era. But oftentimes, the best books are not just that, those that, that give the facts and then speculate on what might have happened. But it's those that take you right into the room. Eyewitness accounts, those who were there. Accounts that tell us not just what happened, but how it happened. They are fascinating and they, they can be powerful. What was the feeling in the room? What was the temperament of those who were in command? What was really at stake? What little details would someone who was not in that room have missed or have known? As we come to John 14, 15 to 31, we have such an eyewitness account. Here we are invited into one of history's most intimate moments. As we come to this passage, we are invited into the upper room. Mere hours from the cross of Christ, from his death. As we peek in on Jesus' teaching here, his betrayer is already at work. He is at the temple right now, bargaining for Jesus. Bargaining to betray him. As we sit here, as we listen, the disciples recognize that there is something unique going on. We know this because of what Jesus has said. He's, he's talking about his death and his resurrection. He's talking about the traitor who's in their midst. He has told them that he is leaving them. But you also see their heightened interest in the questions that they ask. All through the first 14 verses of John 14 last week, into this week in John 14, 15 to 31, the disciples are, are interested, they're invested, they're asking questions. What about this? What about that? They are straining to wrap their minds around what Jesus is saying. They are hanging on every word. These are intimate moments into which we are invited. These are precious moments. These are moments and words that will echo through the ages. This passage, John 14, 15 to 31, is an incredibly dense passage. There is a lot here. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. It is a, it's a difficult passage to preach just because it's a difficult passage to outline. There is so much here. There's so much for us to see, so much encouragement, so much truth, so much deep doctrine. As we approach this passage this morning, let us not do it lightly. May God, through His Spirit, give us wisdom and understanding.
already mentioned a little bit about the context. We are in the upper room. It's in the middle of Jesus' farewell discourse. And the main topic, the thing that kind of is flowing underneath this entire time from John 13 to John 16, even into 17, is the fact that Jesus is leaving. There is a change that is happening. His departure is at hand. And it's a shocking news to his disciple. And Jesus' purpose here is to encourage his disciples. His departure is for their good. And he'll return for them, as we saw last week. But this morning, Jesus adds another element to the discussion of his departure. Not only will he come back for them, but in his absence, he will not leave them empty-handed. He is leaving, but another is coming. And they will be fully equipped to carry on the ministry that he will entrust to them. As we work our way through this passage, we will see the announcement of the helper, the need for the helper, and the purpose of the helper. The first thing we see here in John 14, 15 to 18, is the announcement or the introduction of the helper. As we finished last week in John 14, 12 to 14, Jesus encouraged his disciples with this truth. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, verse 12, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. If they believe him, they will do great things through him. He is still at work, even though he is leaving. As we come to John 14, 15 this morning, Jesus adds this. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you believe me, I will do great things for you. And through you, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 12 to 14 that we ended with last week is a call to radical faith. Believe me. I am at work. I will work through you. I will do great things. And as we keep moving forward into verse 15 this week, it's a call to faithful obedience. In fact, this idea, the idea of love that obeys, weaves its way through our entire passage this morning. It shows up three distinct times in verse, here in verse 15, then in verse 21, and in verse 23. And it is obviously important. If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will obey me. Clearly, Jesus is communicating. He's trying to get something across. If you love me, you will obey me. Obedience can be motivated by many things. It can be motivated by fear. Obedience can be motivated by self-interest. It's not always motivated by love, but love motivates obedience. I can obey those that I am indifferent about. I can even obey those that I have a strong disdain for or those that I fear, but I willingly and naturally order my life according to those that I love. 
If you love me, keep my commandments. What is in view here is not a superficial obedience. It's not a checklist. It's not a keeping of rules. If you love me, you will go to church. If you love me, you will love your neighbor. If you love me, you will not commit adultery. And if you fail to do these things, then you do not love me. Those are good things. And they're included in what Jesus is saying, but they fall short of what he is saying. He's not talking about manufactured obedience. He's not talking about modified behavior. He's talking about a change of life. A reality that affects everything that you do, everything that you are. Not if you love me, you will do this, but if you love me, you will live in this way. If you love me, you will live in accordance with what I have said, with what I have shown you. Your life will testify to the truth of who I am and of who you are in me. If you love me, you will love one another. If you love me, you will go to church. If you love me, you will not commit adultery. Not in order to check it off a list of commands to do, but because that is who you are. If you love me, there has been a change in you. Not if you love me, you must keep my commandments. If you love me, you will. It is who you are. You are mine, and as mine, you will live according to all that I have said. This does not mean that once you are saved, you will sin no more, that you will perfectly keep Jesus' commands. But it does mean that the pattern of your life will line up with Jesus' teaching, with who he was and what he taught and who you are in him. If your life does not line up with that pattern, then you have to ask yourself, do I love him? If you believe me, I will do great things through you. If you love me, your life will manifest that love through conforming to my will. It's at this point, in verse 16, that Jesus introduces us to a promised helper. And this is good news. The disciples are not left to themselves to produce this change, to produce this obedience. While love motivates obedience, it is the helper who produces obedience. Notice, again, Jesus' departure is at hand. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another help. The idea is, as I, as I leave, as I ascend, as I take my seat at the right hand of the Father, I will ask him to send a helper, and he will He will give you another helper. Again, the idea there is a, another helper. It is another of the same 
kind. Jesus is making a statement here to his disciples. This helper who will come is not less than me. He is of the same kind as me, of the same essence. To have him is to have exactly what you have in me. He's not the lowest on the totem pole of the Trinity. He's not a step down from Jesus or less than what they have in Jesus. In fact, he will go on to say in a further passage, as we'll get to in a few weeks, it is to your benefit that I leave and that this helper comes. I mean, notice just here in this passage the differences between this helper and between Jesus. They are the same in essence. He's another of the same kind. And yet, while Jesus has to depart, this helper will abide with you forever. Not only that, but what we see in the end of verse 17, while Jesus was with them, this helper will be in them. He will be in you and he will be with you forever. I am not leaving you ill-equipped. I am leaving you better equipped. He must leave them, but this helper will be with them. It's in verse 17 that this helper is finally identified. And again, Jesus keeps making this statement. It's a, a hint. He is like me. He is the same as me. He is not a step down from me. Who is this helper? He is the spirit of truth. Again, Jesus is the truth, and the Holy Spirit is also the truth. He communicates the truth. He is like Jesus. He is of the same essence. The world did not know Jesus, so the world will not know the helper. They cannot receive him. But notice this at the end of verse 17. It neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You know him. That's present right now. You know him. He is, he dwells with you. The Holy Spirit is not new. When the Holy Spirit comes in power at Pentecost, it's not that he has been hidden away somewhere in heaven, in heaven and he has not been active on the earth. There is a change, but the change is not that the Holy Spirit is now here. He has been here. That's what Jesus says right here. He has been with you. He is with you. You know him. He is already active. He is already known. But here is the change. Where he has been with, now he will be in. Whereas God dwelt among his people in the Old Testament through the tabernacle and the temple, he will now, through Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, dwell in his people. Brothers and sisters, don't miss the wonder of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
What Jesus is promising his disciples is that to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit is to be indwelt by all of God. Pause and think about that. If your faith is in Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you, you are indwelt by God himself. All of him. Not less of him. You don't have less than what the disciples had. The Spirit will be in them is not less than Jesus. The fullness of God that filled the holies of holy, the holy of holies will fill them. What power! What a promise this is! I am not leaving you. I might physically no longer be by your side, but I will fill you. What benefit, what promise, what hope. Imagine, if you will, this morning that Jesus and the flesh walked in our doors. We'd be stammering to take him home, would we? Come home with me for lunch. Come home with me for the week. Come home with me, come home with me, come home with me. Don't you realize that in the Holy Spirit, he goes with all of us. This is a phenomenal truth. This is a hope-filling truth. Don't you see, disciples, I am not abandoning you. I am not leaving you orphans. I am equipping you. I am giving you all that you need and so much more. I will not leave you orphans. I am leaving, but I'm not leaving you orphans. I am departing. But the Spirit who is like me, who is the same as me, will fill you, will equip you, is coming. He's introduced who this helper is. Verses 14, 19, 24. Now he introduces the purpose of the helper. Christian life is not just difficult. It's impossible apart from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Not just is this to your benefit, but you need this. And that's exactly what we see here in John 14, 19-24. These verses, kind of in a sense, sum up the Christian life. They return back to the idea of John 14, 15, where Jesus started. The idea of loving Jesus and keeping his commandments. How can we do this? Because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. His purpose is to aid you in your Christian life and ministry. The first thing where Jesus starts here is with a change of circumstance. Verse 19 actually starts in verse 18 into verse 19. A little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. 
Again, he reiterates the underlying idea of the entire passage. Jesus is departing. He is leaving. But you will see me. The phrase there at the end of verse 18, I will come to you. The world will see me no more, but you will see me. has an immediate fulfillment in Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. I will depart, and then I will come back, and you will see me. It's interesting to note that there is no recorded instances of Jesus appearing to unbelievers after the resurrection. It is believers who see him. You will see me. I will come back. There's likely also a more permanent reunion in view here as well at Christ's coming. I am leaving, but I am coming back for you. And because I live, you will live also. Because I live, you will live also. What a promise. What hope. Because I live, you will live. It's easy for us to read that and to find immediate encouragement from that. But back up a little bit and let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. We know from the way that the disciples react to Jesus' resurrection, to his death, that they did not fully grasp his resurrection until it happened. They didn't recognize what was going on. They had not wrapped their minds around these promises that Jesus will rise. With that in mind, think about what Jesus has just promised. Hours before his death, while I am living, you have hope. Because I live, you will live also. In mere hours from now, what happens? He dies. How devastating must that death have been? You just promised us that while you were living, we had hope, and now you're dead? Mere hours? And yet how much more glorious must that have made the resurrection? He is alive. Death has no power over him. He will never die. And if he will never die, if death itself cannot hold him down, then I will never die. Then I will rise. Then I will live. Then death has no power over me. They did not realize at this moment what a promise this is. While I live, you will live also. Because I live, you will live also. Not only do we see this change in circumstances, that Jesus will depart, a hint that he, he will, he's moving on, In verse 20 to 21, you also see a change in identity. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Not only will the disciples be filled with the Spirit, they will be in Christ. At that day, verse 20 begins, 
As these things unfold, as I'd appeared to you after my resurrection and with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, you will know. You will be able in that day to more fully grasp the things that I've taught you. To wrap your mind around these things. In fact, notice specifically what he refers to. It's his relation to the Father. That's the very thing that they struggled with, as we saw last week in John 14, 1-14. The very thing that they struggled with. As the disciples say, show us the Father. And Jesus says, don't you know me? How have you been with me so long and you have not understood this? See me is to see the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You will more fully understand that. As this, as this day comes, as the Spirit comes, as He indwells you, He will help you to wrap your mind around this, to understand this, to grasp these truths. But notice that He doesn't stop there. Shockingly, He makes another statement. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me. And I in you. Think about what Jesus has just said. The similarity between the language here in John 14.20 and the language in 14.10 is no accident. Jesus is making a statement. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So, I am in you, and you are in me. My relationship with the Father correlates to your relationship with me. We just saw this last week in John 14.10. What does it mean that God is in Christ and Christ is in God? It means that they are equal. It means that what is rightfully God's is rightfully Christ because they are the same. Now think about what that means for your relationship with Christ as unfolded here in John 14, 20. You are in Christ. As Christ is in God, so you are in Him. Brothers and sisters, the benefits that are yours in salvation are not just yours by Christ. They're not just yours through Christ. They're not just yours with Christ. They are yours in Christ. Everything that is Christ is yours. His righteousness is your righteousness. Because He lives, you will live. He will reign. You will reign with Him. And as we see in John 14, 21, because the Father loves the Son, the Father loves you. You are in Christ. And what is His is yours. What a statement. What a promise. What a guarantee. In fact, I want to pick up on this continued thought here in John 14, 21. He carries this forward. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. There again, he repeats John 14, 15. 
The Father has a unique love for those who, are, who love the Son. Those who love me, obey me. And those who love me and obey me are filled with the Spirit. They are in me. What he's saying here is that those who are in Christ are loved by God, not because of their works, but because of their position in Christ. Understand what I am saying. As Christ's righteousness is yours by faith, so God's love for you is yours in Christ. What comfort must this have been to these disciples who were just begging, let us see the Father. Let us know him. And Jesus promises them, he loves you. He knows you. He sees you because you are in me. God's love is yours in Christ. It cannot be earned. The Father loves you not because of merit, but because of grace. And think about what this means for me. Jesus has just said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And when you logically put this all together, this, this fact that God loves me, not because I keep his commandments, not because of what I do, but because of who I am in Christ, this fact frees my works from being motivated by a need for God's love. And allows it to be a response to God's love. I don't have to earn his love. He loves me in Christ uniquely. I have his love. Oh, the riches of the grace of God. Oh, the glories of salvation. May we not miss this. May we not move past this lightly. Look at all that is yours in Christ. He goes on in verses 22 to 24. It is to this one who loves Christ and is in Christ to whom Christ will manifest or reveal himself. Here again, the disciples, Judas here identified as not Iscariot. Likely, this is the disciple Thaddeus. Speaks up. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? The disciples, led by Judas here, are, are thinking in terms of Christ's coming kingdom. When they see the word manifest or revealing, they're picturing Christ coming in the clouds powerfully with an army to set up his kingdom. He is going to manifest himself to the world powerfully. That's the picture that comes to their minds. If that is the case, how is it that the world won't realize what's happening? How is it, Lord, that, that we will see it, but no one else will? As is so often the case in the book of John, Judas fails to realize that Jesus is talking in spiritual terms, not physical here. He's not talking about his coming kingdom. Oftentimes when we're getting in the car to, to go somewhere and I tell the kids to get their shoes on or to get dressed, I'll get bombarded with questions. Why? 
Where are we going? Where are my shoes? Why do we have to go to the store? How far away is the store? Which store are we going to? Endless questions. And, and, and I don't often take the time to tell them exactly where we are going and what we are doing and why we are doing it. Why? Because they don't need to know all that. They simply need to know what I have told them to do and they need to obey. They have responsibility in that moment. They don't need to understand why we have to go to the store before we go to grandma's. They simply need to understand that they need to put their shoes on or they need to get dressed. I've given them a job. Do it. Take care of your responsibilities. They don't understand it in those terms. but. And essentially, this is how Jesus answers Judas's question. He does answer it, but he reiterates their responsibility. How is this, Lord? Judas, your responsibility is to love me and obey me. You need to be faithful to love and to obey. And as you do that, the Father and I will take care of the rest. We will make our home with you. Again, it's a reminder that to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit is to be indwelt by God himself, by all of God. To have the Spirit with you, you could say that Jesus is in me. That the Father is in me. Because the Spirit is in me. We will make our home with you. I will reveal myself to you. As you are faithful to love and to obey, you will come to know me more and more through the Spirit who indwells you. More and more of me be revealed to you. Just trust me and be faithful. Conversely, notice what we see. In verse, hold on one second, I lost my place. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. He who does not love me does not, he cannot keep my commandments. To love Jesus is to live a distinct life of submission and obedience to Jesus. The two most frustrated and miserable groups of people in the world are those who love Jesus but for whatever reason do not submit or obey him for a season and those who do not love Jesus but for whatever reason try to obey his commandments in their own strength The life of obedience and growth described here in John 14, 19-24 is only possible in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who do not love me cannot keep my commandments. Those who do love me will keep my commandments. As you come to verse 14, verses 25-31, to 31, we then see the need for the Helper. Here, Jesus moves out of, of these broad categories in which he's talking to more specific. Right now, for you disciples, 
Again, notice he begins here in verse 25 with a reminder that he is leaving and the Spirit is coming in his place. These things are spoken to you while being present with you. I am here, I am teaching you, but I'm leaving. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, in my stead, in my place, as I go. What will he do? He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. You will not be lacking in knowledge. That, right there, is a phenomenal promise in and of itself because it's these very disciples who have missed almost everything that Jesus has said all throughout the book of John. They're constantly misunderstanding. They're constantly misinterpreting. They're constantly just not listening. It's this group that is going to found the church, lead the church. It's this group that's going to continue this ministry once Christ leaves. How can this happen? Because the helper is coming. You will not be lacking in knowledge. The phrase here, all things that I said to you at the end of John 14, 26, indicates that this is a specific promise to the apostles themselves. It's a promise that would equip them for the writing of Scripture. You will remember everything that I have said. These men who had so often misunderstood Jesus would, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, grasp and skillfully record the doctrine that Jesus had taught. These men who had completely missed so often what Jesus was saying would, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, perfectly remember what he said and perfectly apply it. The Holy Spirit would give them all that they needed, not just for life, as we saw in verses 19 to 24, but for the specific ministry that they were called to. I will not leave you ill-equipped. Now, though there may be no direct application for us in John 14, 26, this is specific to the disciples, to the apostles, who will write scripture. There is general application taught elsewhere in scripture that the same spirit who worked in these men to write scripture works in you and me to illumine the truth of scripture and to apply the word of God to us. We see that in Ephesians 1, 17 to 18 in 1 Corinthians 2. The same Spirit who worked to write Scripture works in you to apply Scripture. How comforting is that as we study the Bible? As I read, as I study, to know that the same Spirit who was at work to record and to write is at work in me to interpret and apply. Brothers and sisters, you can know your Bible. It is understandable. Because the Spirit of God is in you and is working. Find comfort in that. Secondly, we see here his peace, verses 14, 27 to 28. Jesus leaves his disciples, not just with knowledge, but with peace. My peace I give to you. Perfect peace I give to you. Again, put yourself in the instance where we are. What are the circumstances? They are, their hearts are not right now filled with peace. 
They are overwhelmed. They are overcome. Jesus is leaving us. We're going to be left alone. How is this going to work? What is going to happen? How in the world? And Jesus says, I leave you with peace. Jesus, with tender mercy here, once again encourages them not to worry. Don't be overcome by fear. Trust me. I know what I am doing. I'm going, but I have told you that I am coming back and that I am sending a helper. Trust me. Rest in me. In fact, notice what he says, rejoice with me. Don't just trust me as I go. Rejoice with me as I go. If you loved me, you've heard me say that I'm going away and coming back. If you loved me, you would rejoice. Because I said I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I am. Love wants what is best, not for itself, but for the object of that love. If you loved me, you would realize that this is what is best, not just for me, but for you. I'm going where I belong. I'm going to a better place, and I'm putting you in a better position. Don't be overcome by fear. Rejoice in this. It is to your benefit that I leave, that I send you the helper. Rejoice. Verse 14, 29 to 31, he leaves them with assurance. Now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. You may remember that's not the first time that Jesus said that here in John. In John 13, 19, he says something very similar. I'm telling you now, before it happens, that you might be comforted when it does happen. What is it referred to in John 13? Do you remember? It refers to Judas's betrayal. There is a betrayer among you. And I'm telling you that now, that I will be betrayed by one of you, so that when it happens, you will not be overcome, but you will be comforted. That you will know that I knew. Now he tells them of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that he is leaving them, that he is going to the Father, that he is sending the Spirit, so that when it happens, they will not be caught off guard. Imagine if Jesus didn't tell them, and Judas went and betrayed. How could one in our midst betray him? And then he didn't tell them that he was leaving, and he left. What in the world is going on? But he loves them and he cares for them. And so he tells them, these things I am telling you so that you will be comforted when it happens. Fulfilled prophecy builds faith. But at the same time, don't think that I am leaving because I have been defeated, because I have been chased off. I will no longer talk much with you, verse 30, for the ruler of this world is coming. The ruler of this world in the person of Judas. Remember we saw that Judas has now been filled with the Holy Spirit or filled with the, the, the devil. He's been in, filled with him. He has gone out to betray him. Don't miss who is at work in this. It is the devil who is behind this. And Judas has gone. Now he's coming back. But notice this phrase. And he has nothing in me. 
He has nothing. I am not leaving because I've been overcome. The time is at hand. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. He has nothing on me. He is coming, but he is coming powerlessly. He has no claim over me. He cannot hold me. I will triumph. He is coming, and he thinks he's coming, but he has no charge against me. Death will not be able to hold me down. I will rise, I will triumph, and I will depart, but not because I have been defeated. Well, then why must you depart? Verse 31, but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandments, so do I. MacArthur says this, Jesus' death is not a sign that Jesus won, but that God's will was being done. Here Jesus models the very thing that he calls his disciples to do, loving submission. I love him and I obey him. If you love me, you will obey me. As I mentioned before, there's so much in this passage. There's so much here. There are a few overarching themes that we can look to this morning. First, know the truth. Know the truth. And what I mean by that is know who you are in Christ and know what you have in the Holy Spirit. In Christ you are redeemed, in the Spirit you are equipped. In Christ you are adopted and loved. In the Spirit you are sealed, you are kept, you are guaranteed. Know who you are in Christ and know what you have in the Spirit. You may say, well, what does that look like, right? That makes for a nice application point, know it. But what does it look like to know it? It looks exactly like what Jesus said in this passage. It looks like loving him, and it looks like obeying him. Being faithful to do that because you know who you are, so you live in accordance with that. It's the same thing we see in passages like Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. In Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like to do that? To be faithful, to live right, to obey, and to love. Know who you are in Christ. Know who you are in the Spirit. I went through and pulled out some of the specific promises in this passage. Know who you are in Christ. Know what you have. The Holy Spirit will indwell you. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit does indwell you. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. God himself is inside of you, and he is working in you. There's also a promise that Jesus will come for his own. He is coming again. There is an end date. There is an expiration. Jesus is coming, so you can endure There's also a promise that because Jesus lives, we who are in him will live. 
Because he lives, we will live. Find comfort, find hope in that. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. All that is Christ is yours in him. Find comfort in that. The Father loves you. Find comfort in that. Find hope in that. And the Father and the Son will make their home with those who love and obey. Find comfort and hope in these promises. Cling to these promises. Your circumstances don't negate or change these promises. This is simply true. You are in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is in you. You are redeemed and you are equipped. So know the truth. Know those promises. Cling to those promises and live according to those promises. What is my responsibility in this passage? Your responsibility is to love and to obey. Love Jesus. Obey him. Notice it's not enough to simply love. Love and submission or obedience go hand in hand. Love without obedience is as empty as faith without works. Your love of Jesus must impact every area of your life. You obey him because you love him. You submit to him because you love him and he loves you. So what this teaches us then is that how you live Monday to Saturday is more important than what you do on Sunday. This must affect every area of your life. Know the truth and live according to the truth. It's not about what you do, but who you are in Christ and living according to that. Know who you are in Christ. Jesus has not abandoned you. He has given you all that you need. Know the truth and live according to the truth.